Hello and welcome to the IBSA podcast on the topic of corporate restructuring and insolvency. My name is Roy Saunders, founder and chairman of the IBSA, the International Business Structuring Association, which is a multidisciplinary global association of entrepreneurs and their professional advisors dedicated to sharing their expertise with each other within a great networking platform. Today, I'm joined by Vernon Dennis of Howard Kennedy, and I'm changing my identity to become Nicholas, the entrepreneur behind my fictitious case study, which formed the framework of our autumn workshops and which will feature in the forthcoming annual IBSA conference. I would direct our listeners to read the case study on the IBSA website under the conference page at theibsa.org to fully understand what we will be discussing today. At this stage of the development of my brilliant TASH task management software program, I, as Nicholas, am running out of money and need to consult you, Vernon, as to my options uh, in respect for my UK company, T-App Limited, in order to continue in business. I need to understand whether my business is insolvent, whether it's worth saving, how I go about this, and how I can retain my rights over the Tashware, Tash software that I created. So firstly, Vernon, unless we get funding very soon, I cannot see how T-App uh, Limited will be able to pay the developers. So what should I do? Well, the first thing I would do in advising you, uh, Nicholas, oh. Right here is to think about what your aims and purposes are. You know, what actually are the aims of the business? What do you want from um, uh, the situation that you're now faced in? Because that, if you like, starting from the end of looking to what objectives are, will drive what options are available. But first and foremost, one then needs to establish are we talking about a solvency or insolvency situation? And when you're looking at insolvency, there's two principal tests to take into consideration. Uh, the first is a sort of cash flow test. And, you know, by your introduction, there seems to be some sort of cash flow issue, uh, inability to pay the developers. Now, a cash flow issue a test of insolvency is one where there is an inability to meet debts as they fall due. And so I would ask, Nicholas, you know, what other debts are falling due? When can they be met? What does the cash flow projections look like for the business? Because this might tell us whether there is immediate cash flow uh, difficulty or cash flow insolvency. But the other equally important test of insolvency is a balance sheet test. Do the assets exceed the liabilities? Or, um, sorry, the liabilities exceed the assets of the business. And in doing that, the director has to have very serious concern, concern as to looking at future prospective contingent liabilities. But, you know, future ideas. So where you sometimes get yourself in a situation is that you may be cash flow insolvent at the time, at the time, but in the future, a future event may occur where you won't be able to meet that liability. And so you've got to take into account this sort of prospective insolvency. So acting as a director in the shadow of insolvency raises certain duties, responsibilities, obligations and that then limits the choices that you might have right at the very beginning when I'm sort of outlining, well, what do you want with the business, et cetera. Um, and so an, an assessment of um, the solvency is really important. Now, that's not something very often a lawyer can do. You can't test the solvency or otherwise. Sometimes it's very obvious on a cash flow insolvency. If there's a debt that can't be met, you can say, well, you're insolvent on that basis. 
But a balance sheet insolvency test is a much more nuanced and difficult issue and, and really relies upon the director taking a very good view as to the business, what his prospective uh, future revenues are going to be, but also what the liabilities are, are like and where those liabilities are going to fall due. So when I talked about the cons contingent respective future liabilities, and in that assessment, you need to work very closely with the director. And it may be that you need to work closely with the accountant. If there's a very good treasury department within the business, you know, you can work very closely with the CFO. But it may be that you need to bring in external accountants. It may even be bringing in an insolvency practitioner to provide real granular advice upon the business and its solvency. But as I said, the, the issues that the business faces and the options that it has is driven by that first question. Are you or are you not insolvent? We, we can't meet our debts at the moment, but I am looking for further funding um, and likely to get further funding, I think. So can I continue trading um, in TAP while I'm looking for this further funding? Well, I think the first thing we need to consider is really your duties and obligations as a director. As I said, you know, when you're looking at solvency or insolvency of a company, different obligations arise. Now, primarily, the issue is the promotion of the success of the company for the benefit of its shareholders. But where the company is insolvent, the director's duties are to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its creditors. A very different duty, a very different responsibility. So one has to be very careful as a director in continuing to act where the company is insolvent because the due to overriding duties are what is in the best interest of the creditors. Now, continuing to trade may be in the best interest of the creditors. For instance, an immediate cessation of business, a stop, would stop it, all revenue flow, but also there would be customers who couldn't uh, be fulfilled, etc. And that would cause loss. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is the potential future revenue or, sorry, reworking capital that might be provided by a new, new funder. So you would look very carefully as to, well, what is the probability of that, that funding coming through? And that's really looking at sort of balance sheet insolvency point that I may be insolvent now, but I can see that there is a prospect, a real reasonable prospect, that insolvency may be avoided by future funding. So there is that ability to continue to trade, but you have to be very careful in doing that getting advice on duties or responsibilities, assessing that um, uh, continuing to trade to see whether it is in the best interest of the creditors, and overall ensuring that you avoid um, actions which might cause loss to the creditors. What's my personal liability there? Uh, well, yeah, this, this becomes the major point, that if you fail to act in the best interest of your creditors, if you, if you cause loss to your creditors, then personal liability can ensue. So the issue for any director is to ensure that they're acting in the best interest of the creditors and to avoid an insolvency process. But if an insolvency process does arise, then the office holder, be that a liquidator or administrator, will look back at the conduct of the director and look to see whether their actions, whilst they were in the shadow of insolvency, has caused loss to the creditors. If that loss to the creditors has been caused as a direct consequence of the failure to put the company into administration or liquidation at an earlier date, then personal liability can ensue. And liability for the increased uh, detriment to the creditors is the kind of starting point for any kind of compensation. So the, what I often say to directors is that, you know, the wrongful trading, and that's really what I'm talking about here, wrongful trading is often described as, you know, it's the biggest bucket of insolvency. It's what directors often are principally aware of. 
uh, but it does have a bite, and the bite is personal insolvency. Um, it's as and personal insolvency for the individual because it's going to have personal liability, and potentially if they can't meet that liability, personal insolvency themselves. Um, so it has you know significant consequences. Insolvency also has a number of other different uh, connotations as well. As I said, not only just acting in the best interest of the creditors, but if you cause loss by actions that you've taken, you have caused your breach of duty to your creditors, loss can be attributable to that as well. There's sort of misfeasance. And there's also personal liability that can attach if you have misdirected funds, misapplied funds, a paid a connected party, paid yourself in, in, in priority to other creditors, for instance, repaid a loan, etc. Okay. So, I mean, one of the things that I'm concerned about is this fantastic software that I've developed, developed the task, task management software. I don't want to lose that out on an insolvency. Um, so, you know, I might want to buy that myself. Uh, or I'm not sure how to go about it, but what what can I do to protect that intellectual property? Yeah, looking at options that are available for the business, the first thing that one would always assess is what sort of assets have you got? What realisable assets has this business got? And, and, and to see how best they could be used for the benefit of creditors. And that's sort of in the usual kind of events, one's looking very much at a company like this, as to what IP it owns. Now, I understand that there's some IP which is owned by uh, uh, an offshore vehicle and licensed it to this particular vehicle, but this particular corporate vehicle as well it seems to have carried out its own development, so may have some through its own IP. Now, um, one of the major, major problems that can arise in these kind of things is if directors take action too early and seek to protect what they view as their asset, their IP, perhaps moving it to a different corporate vehicle, um, perhaps putting it in their own name. I've actually advised, uh, I provided advice where a director did exactly that. Uh, he was protecting the IP from um, the machinations of other shareholders and creditors, so he put it in his own name. And I can say in that situation, he ended up with a 15-year disqualification, not only personal liability for doing so, but disqualification as a director for taking that kind of action. Because where it's a company asset, you've got to act in the best interest of the company and its creditors. So you've got to think very carefully about what assets are owned and how you protect them. But there is a solution of these things. And that's really getting um, an assessment of what IP you have and a valuation of that IP. And if it is uh, uh, independently valued by two or three parties, then there is quite possibly a, a way of moving that IP into a different vehicle with consideration going back into the UK vehicle um, for, for that transfer. Alternatively, and perhaps this is something we'll explore later, if insolvent uh, liquidation or administration of the UK company is inevitable, then it could well be the case that putting it through an insolvency process allows the purchase of the assets, including the IP, from the insolvency practitioner. And for a director, that's probably a much safer and more convenient way of ensuring that proper value is passed, because if you've obtained or obtained IP outside of an insolvency process, then an insolvency process arises, it's quite likely that the IP will look back very carefully and closely, look back very closely at the transaction that's occurred. Whereas if the insolvency practitioner is actually conducting the process of sale and realisation of the asset, then obviously they're in control of that. 
Exactly, I guess, that the owner of the IP is going to be the sole person that might want to buy that IP, I guess. Well, you look, again, we go back to that issue of which IP and where it sits. So, um, the you know, the principal owner of the IP who has licensed it, you would look very carefully at that license, for instance. So does it is it automatically terminated on an event of insolvency? Um, has the licensor got the ability to terminate at any for any notice? Does he have to give notice? Does he have to give reason or otherwise? So the value of the UK company is very intrinsically linked to the IP that is licensed to it. Um, and its ability, therefore, to, to continue as a business outside of Nicholas's control is going to be very dependent upon that IP license and whether it is severable or um, is capable of assignment or otherwise. In the normal course of events, I would expect the IP licence to be terminated at the behest and at the, uh, the behest of the licensor, i.e. the offshore vehicle, which means the UK company can't then use the IP. But the UK company has done something about apps. It has done some development itself, so it's likely to have some IP rights. So it goes back to your principal point that the person with the primary IP license, the primary uh, technology IP in the technology, is likely to want the use of the technology that has been developed by the UK company mm. and be therefore the sole purchaser. It's it's a it's a difficult question, and it's one that the insolvency practitioner, when appointed, would look very closely at the IP. May well certainly would bring in an independent valuer to assess you know, how um, the value of that IP could be um, realised and for whom, etc. But it goes back to your point that, you know, in, a, in an insolvency process where the company has gone into a process in the UK um, and there is a realisation of assets, then it could well be the case that the insolvency practitioner does sell to, um, to Nicholas or Nicholas's offshore vehicle for um, an appropriate value. Okay, uh, so so what are the various options that I have? I've heard of CVAs and you know um, administrative uh, issues and so on that you get into. What are mm -hmm. the various different options do I have as uh, as the owner of the company? Well, it goes back to again my very first comment, which was it depends upon your aims and objectives as the owner of the company as to whether you're looking towards rescuing the company or rescuing the business. And that will, one, be de de dependent upon your aims and objectives, but also a, an assessment of the insolvency or otherwise of the company, i.e. what the creditor base is, what stakeholders would say or otherwise. So what you would look at, first and foremost, is if there was a, a wish to save the company, there are a couple of procedures one could use. One is a company voluntary arrangement, and one is a restructuring plan. Restructuring plans are a little bit more um, of a more recent introduction into our legislation, but they do something very similar to a company voluntary arrangement. So I'll explain that first. A company voluntary arrangement is an arrangement with the company with its creditors. It's a simple um, arrangement to say, well, um, I will either pay you some pence in the pound or I will sell some assets and you will have the benefit of those assets. That's a sort of arrangement uh, or a compromise. And the creditors who are unsecured vote on that. And if 75% in value vote in favour, then the uh, minority creditors are also bound to the plan. And as long as the company keeps to the plan, 
um, then they are released from the debt. So rather the debts are compromised within the terms of the, the CBA. A restructuring plan does something very similar, but it's a wider, it's got wider application. It can also include other classes of creditor and can also include shareholders. So it's a bit like a scheme of arrangement, a company act scheme of arrangement, crossed with a CVA. And so you have different classes of, of a creditor or a stakeholder, each of whom who vote within their class as to whether they approve. If there is a class of creditor who do not agree, they can be crammed down. They can be compromised with a, with appropriate application to court. So uh, we're seeing that a little bit more um, creeping into um, the insolvency regime. We're seeing more uses of that. We're still in the sort of thirty to forty processes used so far, but they have they're going to have increasing application of the cram down. Now this is important because it saves the company. These are processes that save the company. And one needs to think very carefully as to why you might want to save the company. There may be uh, tax losses, which might be useful for, to carry forward. Uh, there may also be uh, licensing. that if, if you go into a formal insolvency process, the license disappears. So there could be really good advantages of keeping the company alive. But that does depend upon creditor agreement. On the basis that we can't get creditor agreement. Yeah. Um, but we believe the business is actually still viable. Uh, so what's the alternative to to the CVA or restructuring arrangement? Well, that's that those entirely it. If you've got a business that is viable, um, one can look towards uh, rescuing the business as opposed to the company itself. And the primary one of those is administration. While administration can rescue the company and see the return of the company to its shareholders, in the vast majority of cases, administration sees um, a sale of the business and assets um, to a third party or to a connected party. And that going concern sale of the business, which is generally what administration does, a going concern sale will raise more for the creditors uh, because it hasn't seen a cessation of business, it's seen a continuation of business. And the way that you do that is that uh, the administration first provides for a moratorium against creditor action, it allows for a breathing space, it allows a plan to be drawn together. And while that plan is being drawn together, whether it's a sale or otherwise, creditors can't take action, and then the sale takes place. Um, there is something that many people have, will have heard of in, the, in this context. It's a pre-administration, a pre-arranged administration. That's a slightly different beast. That's one where the negotiation for the sale of the business and asset takes place prior to the administration, but is completed at the point of administration. And why you do that is because it allows complete continuation of all of employee rights, trade. It allows no, no. Um, we, we sometimes call it the melting ice cube theory of insolvency. You have a business and as soon as you, you put the spotlight of insolvency upon it, the, the ice cube starts to melt, the value dissipates away. And that is something to try and avoid. So a prepack can avoid that because from day one, the creditors, from day uh, the suppliers, the customers, the employees, from day one will simply be saying, well, the administration has, has occurred, you've now got a new owner, the new owner is now um, able to capitalise the business, and off you go, you've got a successful, successfully rescued business. So a prepack has a lot of advantages. Where prepacks come into a lot of criticism is where, there are so, where the sale is to a connected party. 
i.e. the former management, which might well be the issue here. And so there's a couple of bits of regulation which are uh, restricting the use of pre-PAC administrations or rather regulating them. The first is that the administrator must report to the creditors immediately upon appointment, justifying his actions to why he didn't um, do a period of administration, why perhaps the business wasn't marketed in a normal way. Um, and also prior to the sale, um, the proposed purchaser must go to an independent evaluator. That evaluator looks at the proposed um, prepackaged um, sale, also looks at the business going forward and, and effectively signs off as to whether they think it's an appropriate use of the insolvency processes. So those two things are there to try and provide comfort to the creditors, but also to ensure that the uh, the new co, the new business and the new management team have um, justified their behaviours. So a pre-packaged administration is very often the thing we, we see, we talk about very often, but there is the alternative. Um, if administration is just simply inappropriate because there isn't really a trading business that needs to continue, then one could put the company into liquidation and simply liquidate the assets. Um, it depends upon you know the nature of the business, the purpose that you have behind it. Going back again all the time to, well, do you want the company saved? Do you want the business saved? Is it just the assets you're interested in? Um, is there a business, underlying business that you want, or is it just the assets? And if it's just the assets, it may well be the case of um, a liquidation sale. So they're the sort of processes that are available at that point. It sounds to me as though uh, the, there's a need for transparency in everything that you're doing, as opposed to, um, you know, not telling people what's going on. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more. I think um, there is transparency throughout the whole process in terms of valuation, for instance, in terms of looking at your asset base, ensuring that independent valuation has been obtained, you know, so that there is a justifiable course of action. The transparency as well after the deal is, as I've indicated, through the report to creditors, through the evaluator report. But sometimes there is an element of um, wanting to keep uh, the fact of insolvency, the fact of the difficulty away from the creditors. And, and I have to say at this point, it's a quite a difficult thing for directors to balance, because I would say be transparent, be upfront with your creditors, inform them what your intentions are, because, you know, you may have a proposal to put to them they might want to agree to. But at the same time, you're, you're recognising that the moment that your creditors lose confidence in you, you might have all sorts of enforcement action. You can have bailiffs turning up or court enforcement officers, as they're now called, turning up at the door. You could have... Um, uh, creditors seeking to wind up the company to get their money back. You could have banks taking action. You know, so there's a whole raft of different stakeholders who could take enforcement action the moment you start talking to them about your plans. But I have to say, that's one of those things that you, we try and assess right at the very beginning. You know, what's the aims and objectives? Who are the stakeholders? Who are their interests? You know, where are you likely to see support? Where are you likely to see opposition? And managing that process um, carefully uh, is really, really important because as we go back to, there's an overriding duty to the creditors. And, and you talk about uh, creating a moratorium when you actually uh, appoint an administrator or whatever, there's, you know, the creditors' rights are, are, are prevented uh, from, from being enforced. But if they actually, you know, you've told your creditors, I've, I've got problems, and you then get um, a writ, for example, um, 
what can you do in terms of timing? Uh, how how quickly can you actually put the company into administration to prevent the writs being enforced? Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting one because there's the, the, the law tries to balance the interest of the creditors to take action against the ability of the directors to try to rescue um, the business for the best interest of the creditors. So there is a balancing act to be had. So for instance, an administration, if a winding up petition is filed, then the directors cannot put the company into administration themselves out of court through an out-of-court process. They have to go to court and they have to persuade the court with probably the petitioning creditor there as well, making representations and persuade the court that it is in the interest of everyone to put the company into administration. If that hasn't happened, if there wasn't a winding up petition, it's uh, the the directors have an ability to, as we say, appoint out of court, and that's simply a filing of notice at court of their inter of their appointment of an administrator. At the same time, the administrator has to give his consent to the appointment, etc. Um, there is another element as well, sometimes a notice of intention to appoint an administrator, and that can be used where there's a qualifying floating charge holder, a secured creditor in front of everyone. They have to be given notice of the intention to appoint an administrator. They can take their own action at that particular point. But the answer is your ability as a director to act is dependent upon, uh, well, uh, how long you've got. How, 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 what creditor action has been taken? So, um, in the absence of creditor action, such as a winding up petition, it can be immediate, it can be a day, it can be literally within the hour, provided you've got an insolvency practitioner who's willing and able to take the appointment. Yeah, so that's somebody you need to, uh, yeah get hold of in advance really so that you, you go to yes yeah they're, they're not going to put their name to an appointment unless they are persuaded that administration is in the best interest of the creditors and that it is viable so you're absolutely right although you might have creditor action you've got to have lined up your insolvency practitioner yes. and that goes with getting advice as to duties responsibilities and it may well be that you know there might be a rescue plan that you know avoids insolvency that the fact of getting new money in is is maybe enough but you have to have a plan b that if that money doesn't come in well what do you do and having an insolvency practitioner lined up ready to go if needed is probably the most prudent course of action you can take very good well thank you very much Vernon. uh thanks for joining me today that was really interesting i'm sure nicholas would be extremely grateful for these insights uh and he might have some more questions for you uh when we all meet again uh on the 23rd of may at the ibsa annual conference where we'll be talking about these as well uh details of course are on our website at the ibsa.org uh, so now I'm going to change back again from Nicholas to Roy Saunders and conclude this podcast by thanking you all for listening.